0: Welcome to Conversations with Big Rich. This is an interview style podcast. Those interviews are all involved in the off road industry. Being involved, like all of my guests are, is a lifestyle, not just a job. I talk to competitive teams, racers, rock crawlers, business owners, employees, media, and private park owners, men and women who have found their way into this exciting and addictive lifestyle. We discuss their personal history. Struggles, successes and reboots. We dive into what drives them to stay active in off-road We all hope to shed some light on how to find a path into this world We live and love and call off-road
1: Whether you're crawling the Red Rocks of Moab or hauling your toys to the trail Maxis has the tires you can trust
2: for performance and durability four wheels or two Maxxis Tires are the choice of champions because they know that whether for work or play, for fun
1: or competition, Maxxis Tires deliver. Choose Maxis. Dread victoriously.
0: If you still love the idea of a printed magazine, something to save and read at any time, Four Low Magazine is a magazine for you. Four Low cannot be found in a storefront or on a bookshelf. But you can have it delivered to your home or place of business. Visit Forlo Magazine.com to order your subscription today. On today's episode of Conversations with Big Rich, we have Nate Hunt. For any of you guys that are running BFGs, you know Nate. But for those that you don't, Nate is the Motorsports Race Operations Director at Jackson Motorsports and Events. And Nate has been around for quite a while, and he's a just a super great guy and helpful and Nate I want to say thank you so much for coming on board and uh sharing your story with us
2: of course glad to be here thanks for inviting me
0: yeah no worries so let's uh let's find out how you got to be part of Jackson but uh to do that we need to start at the beginning and uh let us know where you were born and raised
2: well i was born and raised in well i was born in cooperstown new york <laughs> Oh wow! Baseball Hall of Fame, uh, Little League, World Series, all that kind of stuff. Um, upstate New York. My dad owned a dairy farm in Carlisle, New York, and uh, we had about a hundred milking head, and then we had, of course, all the heifers and calves that come along with that, and and some beef cattle, and uh, did all all our own oats and hay and corn and silage and all that kind of stuff. So. Um, yeah, that's I was born, born and raised in upstate New York. So a farm boy. Yep. Huh. I. But only a only a farm boy until I was. Uh, I think we we moved when I was about seven. Oh, okay. So. Yeah, so I was uh, I, I was on the farm long enough to learn how to, to push the manure into the gutter, uh, push the silage up to the cows, uh, sweep did some milking but I wasn't quite tall enough to do milking on my own at that time uh, on my dad's farm and then uh, but yeah just just that farm kid that go down there and and uh, do whatever he could at at the early ages before school and after school and uh, get to ride on tractors and my dad would put the tractor in gear let the clutch out jump off and I would steer the thing back to the to the barn and just Sw- switch it off when I got there because I couldn't reach the pedals and, <laughs> and uh, whatever we needed to do. We were uh, a long ways away from any neighbors and there wasn't any traffic. So uh, it was just kind of that farm life in a remote area and out in the country in New York.
0: That's awesome. So that's probably what created the the good work ethic that I'm sure that uh, that Jackson Motorsports saw in you.
2: Uh, yeah, I would I would definitely say um, I definitely learned some work work ethic from being on the farm. My dad was a uh, he's a Cornell graduate. Uh, he wrestled wrestled in high school, won state championships in wrestling. Uh, went to Cornell on a full ride wrestling uh was a farm kid this is a family farm that he that uh he bought for my grandfather and his father before him so it was a family farm for a long time and so my dad grew up in that in that uh, environment so uh and of course his parents were um, survivors of the depression great depression so it was a you know very stingy if you will I guess or <laughs> however you want to call that where you're squeezing every little bit of toothpaste out of the tube and adding water to the liquid soap to make it last longer and saving all the slivers of bar soap until you had another bar that you could use um, just that kind of really conservative lifestyle and and uh, pinching everything I remember when I when I earned my first dime and of course I had to put half of that in the savings and um, you, you had to work for everything that you got. So yeah, definitely from that, my dad was also a Vietnam vet. So he had a little bit of that military in him. Um, and then, and then bought the farm for my grandfather. So yeah, I think with all that tied in, I got quite a bit of work ethic from my dad, um, both on the farm and then, and then what he went on to do after that, which I can get into that if you want. Well, we'll we will, but let's, uh. The one of the things
0: that I that I find with with families that uh, went through the depression and maybe carried over those those same um, survival skills I'd almost put it with their kids and is that they became collectors, meaning you didn't throw anything away. I wouldn't say so much hoarding, because hoarding is you know I mean it. it it normally includes trash and everything else nowadays. But mm-hmm. my grandfather worked at Bethlehem Steel as an electrician and worked on the the Navy ships um, for World War II and things like that. And, I mean, the guy had electrical stuff up until the 70s in boxes and in coffee cans and everything that – were so outdated, Um, you know, it was like the hob and nail or, you know, the tube and nail, whatever they call it, electrical, um, that you see in really, really old houses where the wire runs through the the insulator and you kind of just pinch onto it. That's the kind Mm -hmm. of stuff that he had collected and didn't throw away. And then finally, my dad started throwing it away when, uh, in the 80s. But it was like, you know, it was like, why do you have this stuff? It's nothing ever we're going to (laughs) use.
2: Yeah, I I definitely saw some of that. I think to me, the difference between, as you call it, collecting uh, versus hoarding is those at least I'll just speak about my dad, my grandparents. It was uh, we're going to hang on to this in case we need this again and we won't have to buy it again or, or, you know, have to spend money um, to, to get the same thing again. But the difference between hoarding and collecting, I think, is that uh, we, we were, I was taught ever since I can remember was to take care of things, take care. If you own it, like take care of it. And so there was very rent. There was, there wasn't probably anything broken laying around. It was all something that was maintained. And uh, I can always remember my dad said, you know, until you, learn to take care of what you already have, you're not going to get any more or I'm not going to give you any more or I'm not going to let you buy anything anymore until you learn how to take care of what you already have. And uh, I guess to me, that's the difference between hoarding and collecting because uh, they took care of what they had because they didn't have much. Right. uh, But what they had was taken care of and it wasn't just tossed in the attic and forgotten about.
0: Being a a graduate of Cornell and then owning the farm, was he in a, agriculture studies or to, yeah. Okay. He, so he was ag studies. Okay.
2: Yeah. 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 So he's like certified for, um, I I don't know all the terms, but uh, yeah, all the agriculture judging cows, uh, at like state fairs, all that kind of stuff that all, all the, when you just look at a cow, it's kind of like how we look at maybe I'm sure you too, how I look at a tire, I see way more, than just something that's black and round and on the car or truck. Right. Um, That's how he would look at a cow, I guess, if you will.
0: I understand. Okay. I understand that.
2: To put it in in these motorsports terms.
0: (laughs) So at seven years old, um, or up until about seven, you guys were on the farm. What changed so that you weren't on the farm?
2: Yeah. So major life change uh, for all of us, our whole family. Um, My... My dad grew up uh, in a church, and he uh, decided um, at that time that he he wanted to go into the ministry. And so he sold uh, his his part of the farm, his half of the farm, basically to my uncle, his brother, uh, who was a co-owner on the farm with him, and moved packed us up and moved us uh, to the city. So that was a little bit of a a life change, and uh, we um, he, he went and got his master of divinity, and in efforts to become a, a pastor, and we did that for three years, and then actually moved back uh, to New York for a little while while he um, candidate[d] or applied, I guess, at church at different churches around, and we landed at a church in Northeast Pennsylvania. Right up uh, on the Delaware River. So right, I mean, Delaware River separates Pennsylvania and New York. So we're still pretty close to upstate New York, but probably uh, two and a half hours away from where I grew up. And uh, it's just a a small church and in in a farm community because that's his kind of people where he felt he could minister the best to the people that he understood. So moved from one farm community to another farm community, just in a different role. And once we moved there, of course, with all the farms around, I was able to uh, walk next door or walk down the street a little bit and and uh, keep working on dairy farms, which is what I continued to do. Uh, mo- most of my most of my el- rest of elementary, junior high, and high school was was still on different dairy farms in the area.
0: So, if you were working and doing especially dairy, because that's all year long, it's not like um, some farming where it's, it's very seasonal, you know, there's always things to do, but I mean, you know, you have the, the planting season, you have the harvest season, and then the rest of it's just basically maintenance. Um, but did, did you, uh, participate in school sports or anything as well?
2: Oh yeah. Um, so (laughs) being in the farm community and, uh, which was already, you know, not very populated. Um, we, we, with my dad being being a, a preacher, there was a, a Christian school attached to the church, and so I uh, grew up in a very small private Christian school. Um, I like to tell people I graduated third in my class. Because there was three uh, I, of you, I, I don't know. There's four. I four. Actually, I, I, yeah, I got that that one spot up on the the other guy, but uh, yeah, there was still four on the podium in the class. Yeah, <laughs> on the podium. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, there were 76 kids from kindergarten through 12th grade when I graduated uh, my senior year, and so. Let's just say we, with that many kids, we had to go all the way down to fourth grade in order to get enough uh, guys for the soccer team. So we started sports kind of early. If you want to call it varsity, you we're on varsity because we had no junior varsity. It was uh, as many bodies that could actually run around and, and play. So, yeah, <laughs> I, I started playing soccer, I think, when I was in fourth grade, and then, uh, in 7th grade I was allowed to get on the basketball team basketball takes less players than soccer of course so I um, started playing basketball and honestly I became obsessed with basketball we didn't have a TV growing up so I, you know, I didn't watch all, you know, NBA games or, or really follow or be able to see sports played on TV uh, I just kind of figured stuff out we watched some Pistol Pete Maravich videos uh, the team would watch, and then read read a lot of books. So I, I, Larry Bird had a book on rebounding, and so I just would read and do do as much as I could without following sports on TV. And to this day, I, I don't really care to watch TV on sports or sports on TV. Uh, I'd rather go out and and do something, whether it's playing or just be outside. But um, anyway. So yeah, I played basketball, became obsessed with it. I would um, I would go to school. I would have basketball practice in the afternoon after I got off to school. Then I would go work, do chores, milk cows, maybe do homework. If my mom's listening, I went and did homework. <laughs> and then uh, and then I would once I got my driver's license, I had to drive about thirty to forty minutes to even get to a stoplight. Or a gas station or anything, so we were still out in the country pretty good. But find a basketball court, outdoor basketball court, uh, where there was actually people around to play. Um, so I'd drive into town and I would play till about midnight and drive back, get up, do chores, milk cows, do it all over again. But uh, it was all about basketball. So um, you know, I thought I, I thought I was pretty darn good because. Uh, In that little small community, I was a a decent athlete and thought I was going to go to college, walk on and show everybody how great of a basketball player I was. Kind of had a uh, rude awakening when I got to college and found out I wasn't quite as good as I thought I was.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I've, uh, I've heard that from a number of people. There was a guy that I went to high school with that was the, well, he was like the point guard on the on the basketball team and one of the captains, he was one of the pitchers and then played shortstop when he wasn't doing that on the baseball team. He was a quarterback on the football team. You know, every sport that he went out for, he was, he was, you know, basically the top dog. And he went to San Diego to go to college and he never, and I mean, it was on a football scholarship And he never played it down at college. Hmm. And he was immediately when he got there, you know, he was thinking, okay, I'm pretty hot shit. And then realized that he wasn't. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And it was interesting, um, listening to him tell me that because when I knew him in high school, um, you know, he was, he was pretty conceited. And then now it's, uh, you know he's completely different than that. Even though he ended up coaching high school football and and teaching in high school and stuff like that, he uh, you know he 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 came to a realization that okay, I'm not as good as I thought, but didn't give up on his dreams. Right. So right. You yeah, didn't I, you didn't I, uh, you didn't make the basketball team in college.
2: <laughs> well. I, I I did. I made the, the second team, which okay. drove me crazy, um, And which is actually kind of funny because that, um, that was a little transition when I figured out I wasn't as good as I thought I was going to be. Um, I actually took a phys ed class and uh, learned how to play volleyball, which I thought volleyball was a girls' sport and just a, a game like you play at a picnic with a bunch of people. Uh, on a weekend, I didn't realize that there was actually uh, men's volleyball. Uh, of course, on the East Coast, not quite as popular as out West. So once I figured out – oh, by the way, I'm in college in northern Wisconsin. Not that far away from Crandon, actually, but I had no idea that Crandon existed back then. Right. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, um, took a phys ed class in volleyball. I, of course, I could jump already from – playing basketball, and uh, turns out I could jump and actually play pretty well, so I picked it up and ended up playing volleyball for six years uh, there in Wisconsin, in the Wisconsin Volleyball Conference, and uh, vo- volleyball took on a whole new passion for me, um, it's just, it was so technical, and it was, you know, every little thing had to be right in order for it to work right, so... Um it kind of goes back to to my basketball days because I can remember I scored, I don't know, 46 points in a game or something, and I uh, was pretty proud of that. And by the way, I didn't get a chance to be too conceited because my, my dad was really good at, at bringing me back to reality. <laughs> <laughs> i get, get in the car and I'd be like, hey, dad, I scored 46 points. And he'd be like, yeah, you would have scored 47 if you wouldn't have missed that foul shot. <laughs> So then, of course, I'm shooting foul shots for the next three weeks every day. But um, <laughs> yeah, it was uh, you know just that you can always do better. That you're you're only uh, as good today is uh, you know your your practice and what pushes you and your you. I, I think kind of the the lesson out of that was like you got to work hard for something, especially if you're not naturally talented. Um to yeah, work really hard for it, and then uh, once you get it or, or get some success, there's always something you can do better. And uh, I think that's kind of how. It well, I know we're jumping ahead a little bit to the pit program, but that's how I feel about pit, the pit programs and, and in boss Like, man, that was really good, but if we could do this a little bit better, that would make everything a lot better. So, anyway.
0: Right. No, that's that's, that's where
2: all that started.
0: Yeah, that's that's part of that work ethic. Um, you know, is being is being brought down when you are at the top of your game, so to speak by either family or friends that, you know, push you to be better and Mm -hmm. some people get it and some people don't, you know, the ones where it comes absolutely naturally, the, the athletics, you know, where they, they may just be like the fastest person around or, you know, great hands or really tall, whatever, you know, they, they've got the, they've got the body for it or the, physically they've got it but they don't necessarily have it mentally and uh, right. I saw that a lot in in high school football or pre-high school football when I coached was the kids that that first day of practice you go oh my god this kid's gonna be a star he he's got he's got the chance to go pro if he really works at it and then you see that you know they become lazy because they they are so much better than everybody else they don't realize that there's there is another level.
2: Oh yeah. I was always jealous of those guys who, uh, guys and girls, but I was playing against guys who could, uh, you know, just show, just show up at practice, go through the motions. Um, when game time came, they'd turn it on and just, they, they do so well just cause they were so natural at it. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to the gym after practice to try to get, you know, jump a little bit higher, be a little bit quicker. Um, but yeah, it, it definitely, uh, sports was definitely a big part of my life. And I think with the work ethic from just working as well as playing team sports and driving myself in that area, I think, um, and having great coaches along the way, um, be remiss to say, you know, obviously my dad was a huge influence in my life growing up and even today, but, uh, I had some great, great teachers and great coaches along the way who, you know, were always pushing you to do better. and um you know i couldn't couldn't ask for for much more than that did i have everything nope uh but i had i had enough and i had what i needed and I'm very grateful for for the life lessons i've been able to learn and cont- hopefully continue to learn uh, the people that have been uh placed in my life
0: excellent so what did you uh study while you were in wisconsin well Besides girls uh, and volleyball,
2: yeah, I didn't really have I didn't really have much time for girls. Um, actually, I never had girlfriends. I, uh, I wouldn't call them girlfriends. Um, didn't have much time for it for all that kind of stuff. It was more uh, uh, classes and work and volleyball. Uh, I guess volleyball is my girlfriend, if you want to call it that. Um, <clears throat> that was the only that was the only uh, recreational activity I got into. Okay, so, that's good. Um <laughs> uh, yeah. But uh no, I was, I was trying to graduate debt free. So I was going to school for um adolescent psychology and and uh elementary education and well, I was the, trying to graduate. The
0: adolescent the adolescent psychology is right up your alley with what you're doing now.
2: it, it, it amazingly <laughs> enough it it uh people always ask me like, "Well, you really went a different direction?" I'm like, "Actually, I'm kind of right in the right in the wheelhouse of, exactly. of what I studied. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, uh, I enjoyed, I enjoyed working with, with kids and, and teaching a little bit. Um, I just, I, I figured out I, I wasn't going to be a teacher. I couldn't stand being in a classroom for that much. Uh, I figured out, I, I, I originally kind of wanted to work in boys homes, juvenile homes. And, um, I did some summer stuff with that and turned out the paperwork and government regulations and all that kind of stuff uh, took away from being able to just work with the kids and then sending them home to the same parents that screwed them up in the first place and then having them come back with even more walls up and harder to deal with and, and get back on the right track than the first time they left. So just kind of got a little bit frustrated with some of that, but I was still kind of thinking going down that path. Um, I was working a couple jobs. I was working, uh, towards the end, I was working on my master's and I, uh, was working third shift at a a hotel in town and, uh, would get, would would get some homework done during the middle of the night when nobody was around and, uh, go to class, take a little nap, go to volleyball practice, take a little nap, go to my second job, which was refereeing sports leagues out in the town. Um, take a little nap after that and go to the job at the hotel so it was kind of a, a little bit of a blur um, trying to work and and get and get schoolwork done but um, kind of leads to the next stage of my life which was uh, finishing up school so when I graduated I owed about 750 bucks um, with my graduated with my master's owed 750 bucks and didn't want to move back in with my parents and that whole cliche of things so uh I had a buddy that lived in uh, Greenville, South Carolina, and he had a two bedroom apartment and was, he was by himself he was like, "Come on down here, dude and, and uh he's like, you got extra place extra room anyways, so you know you can get down here to get a job and get caught up. so that's what I ended up doing. I um packed up my seventy three olds cutlass that I had bought from this old lady in town I had us sitting in her barn. Uh, since her husband died and uh, got it for pretty cheap and loaded up everything into it and started heading south. And uh, ironically enough, um, got a flat tire, pulled <laughs> off to the side, changed it, went down the road a little bit further and got another flat tire and pulled off to the side of the road. And then as I'm pulling off, got another flat tire. So basically, those tires have been sitting on a concrete barn floor since her husband passed away years and years ago um and as you know in northern wisconsin a lot of frozen concrete and uh freezing weather and some pretty dry rotted tires on that car and uh for a guy who never really looked at tires kind of ironic how all that worked out but i was sitting there with uh three flat tires and i started walking down the highway cop picked me up and um, actually, put me up in a hotel and exit down, and uh, there was a tire shop next door. So I got up in the morning, walked over, and I said, Hey, I got a car up there on the highway. I need to figure out how to get some tires for it. And he's like, Actually, I already towed it over here. And I was like, Uh oh, I don't have very much money. I may be working for you for a while. <laughs> and uh, so I started asking him some questions. And long story short, he ended up uh, giving me four used tires, put them on the car, and it actually gave me some cash because he didn't think I had enough money to make it to South Carolina with that 74-year-old Cutlass. And, uh, of course, I argued with him for a while, but he, he wasn't going to take no for an answer. And he basically said, I have kids, and if if my kid's in college and is trying to do what you're doing, I would hope somebody would help him out too. So uh, One of those anyways, pay it
0: forward type
2: moments. Uh, kind of that, yep, yep. <laughs> so uh, made it South Carolina. And the timing of it worked out. It's kind of funny how the timing and the reason why I'm talking all the story um, not only the funny tire part of it, but so obviously I was getting in much later than I would have if I would have had a perfect trip and, um, pulled into the driveway. My buddy's pulling out and he's like, Hey, jump in. I'm going to a softball game. I'm like, cool. Didn't even unpack a thing. Jumped in his car, went to a softball game, sitting on the bench, talking to a guy. And, uh, he said he works at this place called Jackson Motorsports, and you know all the stuff that they did. And I was like, man, I'm looking for a job. I'll, I'll do anything. And he's like, well, a lot of people want to work here because it's you know racing and all this cool stuff. And I was like, well, it sounds cool, but I was like, I'm just looking for work. And he's like, okay, well, give me your number if something comes up. I'm like, okay, so give him my number. And on the way home from that softball game, I got a call from him, and he is basically. I know this is weird, I just said it's really hard, but I just found out I have seven trailer loads of tires coming in tomorrow. I need somebody to come in and unload tires. You want to come in and do that. He's like, I'm not offering you a job, it may just be a couple days. I'm like, yeah, I'll do whatever. So I uh, went in the next day and started unloading tires. And that was almost 18 years ago. Um, kicked off my career at Jackson. And uh, that was... Uh, oh, with my first paycheck, I sent the I sent money. I think I sent like five hundred bucks back to that guy uh, in in Wisconsin that had helped me out with the tires, and I wrote him a check. And a week later, it shows back up. And the check's all torn up in in the envelope. And he's like, <laughs> "You do not owe me anything. Don't ever try to send me money." <laughs> um, that kind of a thing. But yeah, that's where I uh, all of a sudden I'm I'm working for Jackson Motorsports and at the time it's called Jackson Dawson Motorsports we had this conversation earlier but um yeah that was a long time ago feels like a long time ago
0: <laughs> right so that's interesting that that you the first thing you learned about tires is that they were round and black <laughs> while you unloaded <laughs>
2: well, yeah well the first thing i learned about <laughs> tires was that uh they don't always stay round sometimes they go flat on the bottom yes yeah. <laughs> that was uh that was interesting, yeah, and it was funny because when it came to tires, I had no idea. Uh, I'm unloading these these race tires that came over from France on a boat, because um, because we also do Michelin racing, and uh, yeah, I mean they were they they didn't have any tread on them; they were slicks, and I was like. Who would buy a wore-out tire? I got educated real fast. That was not a wore-out tire. It was a very expensive brand-new tire that just didn't have tread on it. So, um, yeah, learn a lot about tires real fast. Um, learn how to. I got put on a Lexus Taste of Luxury tour and uh, learned how to mount little rubber band tires, as they call them. Low profile tires uh, with wheels that had sensors on them, and all the way up to light truck tires. And so I learned how to mount tires, learn how to set up for events, learn how to talk to consumers and work for a client. And yeah, where she all started. So
0: you unloaded tires or unloaded tires out of seven truckloads of some uh, tires, and then you, they, they, the guy that turned into a regular job.
2: (laughs) Yeah, well. Sort of. Um, it was a part-time job and I would get up and um, I got my lifeguard certification in, in, when I was in college and done some stuff at camps. And So anyway, I would go to the YMCA. I would, I would uh, go do that morning swim, uh, lifeguarded for that. So i get up um, kind of on farmer hours actually. It was like 4 a.m. till 7 and then and I would go in to, to work at Jackson. and I would do whatever, working in the warehouse, sweeping floors, cleaning bathrooms, whatever, shining tires. Oh, I don't know if you know this, but brand-new tires sometimes come with those the, the little nipples all over the, the tire, yep. little rubber nipples that stick out all over the tread uh, for a brand-new tire. So when you're putting one on display, they want all those – Cut off, So we'd sit there a little snips and thousands and thousands of those little things we'd snip off the tires and yeah, just all that kind of little stuff uh, that would come up. Um, but yeah, like I said, I learned how to mount tires and dismount tires and uh, got to go do a couple American Le Mans races, um, mounting tires, and actually ended up from there watching this guy uh, trying to track Uh, They used to bring guys over from France to track all the inventory for all the Michelin race tires. And Michelin race tires were confidential. So basically we brought, I'm making it up, we brought 3,000 tires to a racetrack. We left with 3,000 tires. We'd loan them to the teams for the weekend. They weren't allowed to keep them. um, They were highly confidential and weren't allowed out in the public or with other teams. So we had to collect all of those race tires back. So there was this inventory system, and uh, they would send over some French guys to, to do that. And uh, I ended up watching that and, and helping them out with that program and then learned it pretty well. And they ended up leaving um, was a couple of French guys that would come over to help with that uh, had put me in charge of that. So I became the inventory manager north of Michelin Race Tires in North America. And that was kind of my first full-time job at Jackson. Um, Very nice. And, yeah, did that for three or four years. You know, what's kind of cool at, at Jackson is there's a lot of variety. We have a lot of different clients other than just Michelin, um, even in the motorsports arena. Uh, so I got to go do a, a Volvo construction equipment, learned all the Volvo construction uh, lineups that they had for all those vehicles. And we used Richard Petty, Jeff Gordon and, and um, Mario Andretti driving schools and got to drive stock cars and Indy cars for all summer and bringing out clients and running those events. Um we had BMW Motor Ad for a client, so I got to go around the country with a fleet of motorcycles and lead demo rides at all these bike dealerships and, and bike rallies across the country. Did some some marketing events. So yeah, I just kind of learned as I went. And this this whole time, I I knew who Frank D'Angelo was, and he was living up in Pennsylvania. And he was managing this, you know, the BF Goodrich side of things, but I never really touched too much on it. So he would show up, I would see him. I knew who he was. Um, but didn't really know a whole lot about him. We definitely didn't know much about each other. And uh, was, as I was doing some Michelin marketing, we got to know each other. He moved down to South Carolina, um, and we actually got to know each other. And we started talking about some BF Gooder stuff. In fact, it's kind of funny. I can remember being in the office when uh, this guy, Robbie Gordon, um, won the Baja 1000 on Toyo tires and broke BF Goodrich's streak of wins for the Baja 1000 overall. Um, and how huge of a deal this was. I had no idea what anything about off-road racing and couldn't figure out why this was such a big deal. (laughs) And and now being in the off-road community, I found out just how big of a deal that was
1: for for the
2: (laughs) brand. Um, but yeah, uh, all that stuff with Jackson and then into basically into off-road, um, the guy before me I think you know rich uh would be victor Angon, yep so um i know he he did some of your events and stuff as well or was involved in, in rock crawling and stuff back then
0: yeah when Jeff and, Cummins uh, was more yeah. into the off road side he uh I was dealing with jeff with uh when I owned valley off road racing association vora mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. uh and then victor somewhere in there um got to know Victor as well. Once I started going to desert racing and then, you know, the rock crawling was still doing the rock crawling at that time too. So it came across right. Victor.
2: Right. Yeah. So Victor and I had done some other events um, and he uh, became the uh, Frank second man. Basically Frank had this other guy that, that worked for him when he was up in Pennsylvania, when he moved to South Carolina, um, that guy wasn't able to come. So Victor and Frank started working together, and I was doing some some other stuff. And Victor actually invited me out to King of the Hammers in two thousand eight. That was my first King of the Hammers, uh, which I think is like really the first big year. I guess they had the OG whatever deal right. two thousand seven, but yeah. So I've been going to King of the Hammers ever since two thousand eight, and was uh, doing some marketing stuff for Victor and. That's when I kind of got to know Frank a little bit. Um, we started the um, BF Goodrich Media Center at Baja races, and that's when I started going to Baja races. Was to help out with that. Not really working for for the off-road scene at the time. Was just helping out with the BF Goodrich Media Center at, um, at some of the races. So that was kind of getting my my toe dipped in it. Uh, got to go to Cran a few times, um, setting up displays and rolling posters and handing posters out and talking about products to people. So it's kind of my first introduction into the off-road scene.
0: Right. And what was, uh, what was your impression with the first time you went to Baja or King of the Hammers? Or let's, let's start with King of the Hammers.
2: (laughs) Well, King of the Hammers, uh, First of all, I thought they were playing a trick on me. Uh, I thought I was being hazed or something. <laughs> um, because in 2008, it's not like it is now. Like, no. like there's, a, there's basically a freeway out to the lake bed now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> True. Um,
2: <laughs> and uh, like we're, we're like going on this dirt trail that that was truly a, a you know, it, it was whooped out. It was beat up. Um, you really thought you were just on a trail to nowhere. And um, you know we're bumping along all the way out there, and then all of a sudden came around, you know, got got close, and there was a few tents set up, and um, it, it it was it was it was interesting for 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 that early in King of the Hammers um, to see those few people out there. And that's back when you had to like drive out to this particular bush that was in the middle of nowhere in order to get any type <laughs> of cell reception.
0: The cell phone the bush, cell yes. The cell phone
2: bush, yeah. Um, you know, and it, it was it, it was eye opening for sure. And what I what I learned right away, I think the biggest impression that I had, um, both Baja uh, and King of the Hammers not so much short course racing, but Baja and King of the Hammers especially, was that no matter how much experience you had, no matter how much money you have, you're at some point – there's a very good possibility at some point you're going to have to ask for some help. <laughs> Correct. So you could be out in the middle of nowhere, and you could be a billionaire, and you might have to ask you know, this, this guy who, who – you know work works as knuckles to the bone just trying to pay some bills and maybe tinker on a race car on the weekend in order to get out to this one race uh, you may have to ask for that dude's help so um compared to pavement racing where you know the drivers would fly in on their private jets and you know get escorted into their private dressing room if you will and uh never see the public, never, never talk to the, the support crews, the guys doing the tires or whatever support crew out there. You know, they basically, you know, go straight to the, the car, get in, drive it, get back out, go to the dressing room, fly home. Um, I'm sitting there looking at, uh, you know, the Shannon Campbell's and the, the, uh, Dean Bullock's and all these guys who were basically superstars of the sport. Um, back then um I uh, can't remember that, there are so many right the Lauren Heelys, the Randy sloss and all those guys um I'm like these guys are the drivers they they drive these race cars <laughs> and, and, and I just you know they shook my hand and, and his hand was dirty uh from wrenching on his car uh or wrenching on somebody else's car because somebody else needed some help and they were able to help him um it blew me away that you had that access to the driver's Right. Um, and team and team owners, uh, it, it it was eye opening to me because you didn't get that in the pavement world.
0: And the bonfires uh, yeah. at night, back then, uh, the early years, yeah, yeah. everybody knew everybody.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And the drivers mingled. The, yes. the team owners mingled. It was, it wasn't a uh, you know spectators are here, support crews here, and drivers and teams are over here. It was all together.
0: Yep. <clears throat> now, I do miss that. <laughs> i yeah every time the the last couple of times that I've been out to King of the hammers it's you know it's just changed so much and it it needed to i mean you know it's grown um you know they they they've done an outstanding job um you know Dave Cole did an outstanding job of taking that from that first and second year to what it is now um is incredible. You know, if if I don't give him credit for anything else, I got to give him credit for for bringing in the right people to to help fill his dream, to build his dream.
2: Yeah. Um, well, yeah. I, I, if you're listening to this podcast and, and I'm talking to you, I mean, you probably know who Dave Cole is. and um, You know, Dave Cole and I have been best friends and worst enemies uh, probably all within an hour. <laughs> um, <laughs> it can happen. we all but, have them. Uh, trust me <laughs> yeah uh but but man what what a future thinker and big idea kind of guy and uh and, and work you and, know and hard work that that he put into it and and uh i mean built up quite quite a quite a deal and it's every time i go, it's probably man i tell you the baja 1000 is pretty darn significant and 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 well-known and something you really want to be a part of. But man, I don't know if it's it's pretty close, if not very close second, if not pretty much on par with a ball 1000 race for me, as far as attending and being a part of um, just from just the sheer size of it, the, the, how cool of an event it is um, and the people that come out to it and are involved with that racing. It, it's, it's pretty special. It's, it's one of my favorite, weeks of the year. Well, it's turned into two weeks of the year Yes, uh,
0: to be out there. And for most drivers, it's like a month. <laughs>
2: yeah, exactly. I,
0: I don't attend anymore because it has gotten so big that it's easier for us to do what, keep doing what we need to do to run our business, but we, we're able to, to have photographers and writers go out there and cover it for our magazine for low mm-hmm. but we don't uh we don't participate in the event ourselves because it's just gotten gotten to be it's it's gotten to be big enough to where it's lost it's it's lost that flavor for me. I don't get a chance to see everybody. I don't get a chance to you know going to out to the bonfire which was something I always looked forward to. Now I know nobody at the bonfire which is absolutely amazes me. Um, you know, and, and so for me to find everybody, I got to go to their pits.
2: Well, you go to bed too early. That's your problem now.
0: Well, yeah, you know, but it's, I'm getting a lot older. So, you know, that happens <laughs> with the gray hair comes other things.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. Yeah. Yeah. I, no, I, I agree that the bonfire is different. Um, once in a while you can still find some drivers here and there, but yeah, like you said, sometimes you got to go find and go, go find them now. And, you know, they basically have their own. Bonfire and party at wherever they are. So right, um, but yeah, definitely, uh, definitely an awesome event. Um, and and Baja, we, I mean, we could talk about Baja all day. Uh, I can anyway. Let's um, do that. Well, yeah. If you want, well, let's before we go to Baja, let's talk about short course real quick. Sure, if you don't mind? No, not because, at all. Uh, short course was very um, was a big part of my life for a long time, and and not so much now. Uh, but when I first started in off-road, um, short course was the thing, and uh, and it was it was growing. It, it was where a lot of drivers were, and uh,
0: a lot of money,
2: a lot of money, and a lot of you know, manufacturers, tire guy. I mean, it was a it was a huge tire war. I guess um, probably out of any anything that I'd ever seen or, or have seen since, I, I've never seen seven or eight tire manufacturers in the same race. Right um, there with full corporate efforts, if you will, and uh, you know, getting getting lined up at the racetrack with with seven different tire companies all in a row uh, was 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 pretty was pretty cool to me as a competitor. I think that probably goes back to the sports thing in school. Um, not a huge fan of spec tire series, <laughs> even though
0: neither am I. <laughs> uh,
2: yeah, they're they're out there, and I can understand, and I see the different sides uh man I, I love i love beating competition and, and even getting beat just drives you to be better and you know and having people choose to buy your tires instead of buying somebody else's because you because they feel like you have the best product or the best service or whatever it is uh, you know to me that, that that that's what gets me up in the morning for sure that's why i love desert racing today and and the, uh and everything that goes into it and i i know we can talk about rock crawling i know y- your passion is there and uh i i i kind of came into the to the bf goodrich off-road scene as as um the brand the bf goodrich brand at the time was kind of pulling back in that area right and so you and i never got to work a whole lot i'd try to visit a couple of your races and got to know some of your drivers and we continue trying to help out a few of the drivers, but we were, we're never there. Uh, I don't think, I don't think I can remember and you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think I was ever out there with a semi or, or a, a full corporate, uh, setup when, by the time I got into off-road.
0: No, I think the last time that we had, um, and it was Tom's truck when Tom was running one of the trucks was probably 2009 somewhere around there in Farmington was probably the last time that we had, um, you know, the, the, that kind of support nationals.
2: Right. Right. Yep. Um, but yeah, I, I still remember I went to one of your events in Tennessee and my daughter got a picture with Derek West. She thought he was the cutest guy. <laughs> and such a nice guy he would still be as good goodish guy at the time uh we were still helping him out and um she has that picture she got that picture printed out and on her dresser or some i don't know maybe, maybe it's not still there i don't know she's 21 now so <laughs> who knows what she has <laughs> on her dresser i don't check that but for a long time that's her that was her favorite picture it Was a picture with Derek. And, um, I just thought that the, again, going back to the drivers, the drivers were so cool and got to mingle with and, and working with you. And I will say, I'll say this on your podcast that, um, it was, it was not because of any lack of effort from, from you of trying to get us out there to your events. (laughs) You and I would talk every year (laughs) and every year you would try to convince me that we needed to be out there. And, um, I, I I get the fun job in uh, the position that I have of of passing along the news from from corporate, <laughs> and sometimes it's good news, and a lot of times it's a, a no, and uh, unfortunately, my conversations with you were mostly like no, we're not able to do it, um, but that that never deterred you from trying.
0: Nope, never <laughs> did.
2: Here. And I. <laughs> And I will say I always felt welcome when I came to your events and I appreciate that about you, Rich, because um even though we weren't uh involved, you were always very welcoming and, and you know, asked me if you know, it would invite me to events and when I when I was able to come to some you you know, you treated me like like you wanted me there. So I oh, appreciated that about you.
0: Well, I still consider consider you a friend before you know some kind of a business associate. So, yeah. you know, that to me is most important and that's why I'm I've been in this this game, I guess you could call it, for so long is mm-hmm. because of the friendships and it doesn't matter to me if they're if somebody's a marketing partner or not, if they're part of the industry, you know, as long as they're a, a good dude or dudette, you know, whatever you want to say that, you know, they're welcome you know, I want to spend time with them.
1: So
2: hundred yeah. percent. And there, and there's, and there's teams, you know, that are on competitor tires. Um, maybe there's one out there. I don't know of one. And, uh, don't tell me if I'm wrong, but I, I can't think of one that, um, that I don't feel comfortable walking up and shaking their hand and, and hanging out with and talking to, because we do have that friendship, but, um, and, and that's more important than any type of business or, or corporate decision or or, or race decision whatever it is um, you know first and foremost you know you're my friend and I never want to have anybody in the business I don't want to have anybody in, in my life um, that I can't walk up to or I feel like I have to walk a wide walk a wide circle around to avoid uh, it's just not not in my DNA right and um, and I, I kind of get that feeling from you as well. So
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> if if I uh if I don't wanna be around somebody, they already know it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And they they more than likely will try to avoid me instead of me avoiding <laughs> exactly. them.
2: Exactly. I, I'm not saying there aren't other people who walk a wide circle around me. Who <laughs> me. I, I, I didn't say that.
0: <laughs> right. I get it. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but yeah, I, and I know part of what you want to talk to, I already feel like I've talked way too much without mentioning some people's names. I, I know I mentioned my dad and some coaches, but um, now that we're talking about off-road world, I'd be very remiss in in not talking about some of the people that helped me get there. Um, I, I do want to say, a Jackson, obviously Daryl Jackson's the, the president of the company, owner, and uh, also a friend. And uh, he's for some reason kept me on without firing me. I I, I swear, I try um, to get fired, but he keeps me on. And I've uh, <laughs> actually learned quite a bit from from him. Um, the first time I I met Daryl was was I drove straight through to Vegas from South Carolina uh, because something had to get out there. And I was worn out, exhausted. I shouldn't have done it, but the guy that was traveling with me uh, didn't tell me he couldn't drive a box truck until we were <laughs> halfway there. <Wow>. But anyway, <laughs> uh, when I got there, um, Daryl was one of the first guys to jump up in the back of the truck and start unloading it. And I was like, "Man, that's the kind of guy that I'd like to work for." Um, you know, not not too good to jump up and get his hands dirty. So anyway, um, for sure, for sure, Daryl uh, keeping me on. And 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 I'm probably saying this so I can keep a job tomorrow, but um, <laughs> <laughs> he he would expect me to say that. Uh, but then uh, a guy named Jack Joseph, he was the first uh, CDL truck driver guy that I that I worked with here at Jackson, and um, older gentleman, a Vietnam vet as well as uh, had that common thing with my dad. And, uh, he basically taught me life on the road, uh, how to keep keep track of your your expenses. Um, you know, really solidified it. Cause I mean, I've grown up this way, but it, it really, when you travel, it's really easy to let things go sometimes and uh, especially home, home stuff. And, and uh, he, he taught me how to try to, how to keep all that stuff kind of straight. Make sure your bills get paid. Uh, when you're doing expense reports, you know, you always err on the side of, of, uh, of, of integrity and uh, never put something on there that you, think you can charge for you you should know and and make sure everything was right and and at the end of the day you you should be able to put your head down on your pillow and know that you are honest you put in the the best day of work that you possibly could and uh, you didn't have to be looking over your back for anything so um he taught me a lot taught me how to mount tires taught me life on the road and and how to to treat a client I was never in the client world. Taught um, t- me a lot about uh, uh, working with clients and, and representing a client and how to do that uh, on and off the field, if you will. Right. <laughs> on track, off track. Um, so uh, he was probably uh, the first guy who really kind of took me under his wing here uh, in this arena and this part of my life, and then um, and then right into. Uh, uh, Frank D'Angelo, who uh, huge influence on my life not not just in off road world but in life, and um, and with that came relationships with guys like Jeff Cummings, um, Bob Bauer, Sal Fish, um, a, a, a lot of influential people in in the off road community and, and at VF Goodrich. Uh, that I never would have got, gotten to know if, if Frank hadn't given me the opportunities, made the introductions. And uh, so I've, I've been very fortunate to, to uh, met a lot of great people. And one, one of my favorite parts of the year is going to the Off-Road Motorsports Hall of Fame um, banquets or, or induction ceremonies or whatever, and being around all these hugely successful people. Uh, whether racers or, or media or government officials, uh, whatever it is. I mean, to me, the cream of the crop when it comes to to the off-road scene um, in, in every area and being able to just sit down and, and, and listen to them tell stories and talk about their experiences and um, eat it up for sure. That's awesome to me. I love spending time. I'm getting to go down this weekend to – to the Nora uh, contingency and start and Sal's going to be down there and get to spend some time with Sal and, and some of those guys down there that, uh, that are awesome. But, but yeah, to, to get back to Frank, Frank really took me under his wing coming into off-road and, and, um, taught me everything about off-road that, that, uh, that he could, I can't say that he knew because he knows way more than he has time to teach. Um, but, really took me under his wing, taught me, um, taught me the ropes, uh, and, uh, consider him a friend. We've had a um, we've worked together a lot, but we've also spent a lot of time away from work and and just even trail riding with him when he's doing his horse thing. Uh, a lot of windshield time down by when we're mapping for the, for the course down there, um, talking about just about everything. And he, He's helped me with relationships, with uh, you know, investing, and all that kind of stuff that that's personal. So um, definitely would not be here without Frank and the influence that he had. Uh, just introducing me to to this world.
0: Yeah, he's Frank is extremely knowledgeable and um, well schooled and versed. And I'm always amazed when I get a chance to talk to Frank about just about everything that that makes frank what he is you know i mean it's just amazing what the guy has done i hope to get him on here on the podcast eventually and uh and pick his brain because he's just he's just an incredible individual
2: yeah yeah for sure and and human and uh right (laughs) He he could uh he could admit when he was wrong and uh, you know some people have a hard time doing that and uh, you know to to be as knowledgeable about motorsports as he is um you know to admit when when uh you know you make a mistake or you, you maybe you go in the wrong direction and we could talk about it um you know we we were uh we we made a great team um he definitely he was definitely a teacher student thing for a long time um. And always will be, but then the the more I I learned and, and developed a passion for motors for off road motorsports, um, the more, the more we were it was becoming more of a um, collaboration and ideas and and talking things out and I was learning from his experience and knowledge and I would bring in a, a fresh idea of somebody that didn't you know hadn't been around it that long maybe looking at it from a different perspective and. From, from that side of things. So it was, it just turned into a really, a really great thing. And, uh, super, super happy to, to have had somebody like him, um, work with me. And, uh, one thing that he would always say is there's a lot of people who know about motorsports. There's very few people who really know motorsports and have a passion about it. And, uh, those are the kind of people that, that, uh, you want to have working for you with you around you. So, um, Yeah.
0: Yeah, I Frank, actually, um, the story I have best with Frank, I think it was 2003, and it might have been, I think, pretty sure it was, um, my son and I went, and we were with Jack Seipolt as part of the BFG pit crew in 2003, the year they shot Dust to Glory, and I got to drive the box truck with all the spare tires and gas cans and everything and for our pit. And I can remember, you know, the, the whole procession, all the, all the pit crews leave at the same time. We all, you know, cross the border together. You know, there could be, I mean, it seemed like there was like 50 or 60 vehicles, you know, different semi trucks and everything and support rigs. And then, you know, people start peeling off at their different pit areas and I'm driving the box truck, and, you know, you got to keep up. And we're passing the locals, but, you know, we've got a, you know, the guy, okay, you know, you got the next mile. I'm a mile ahead of everybody. There's no cars coming. Go ahead and make your passes. You know, we got radio communications between everybody, which was great. And I can remember Frank comes on and goes, I don't know who's driving the box truck, but damn, you can drive. You know, and he may not have said damn, but it was like, you know, it was it was something like that. And, uh, (laughs) and I mean, I got this big old smile on my face and I was like, you know, Frank D'Angelo, this is Rich Klein. I'm driving this thing. Thank you. You know? And it was, uh, (laughs) it was like a badge of honor for him to say that. Uh, And, uh, it was, it really, it's something I won't forget. (laughs) He probably doesn't remember it, but.
2: (laughs) Oh, you'd be surprised. I'm pretty sure he has a uh, photographic memory. Um, he remembers way too much stuff, and uh, especially down by when you're you're going down this trail, and you know there's a million cactuses, and you and you get there at the end of the night, and he's like, "Well, you remember when we made that that right? We swerved right at this one Y, and there was that cactus on the left." And I'm like, "What the heck are you talking about?" It's like, <laughs> it's like every single freaking turn that we had down there. <laughs> um, but yeah. Photographic mind memory, he, he remembers all that stuff. Um, unless he's drinking tequila, and then he, he will be the first to say, Drinking good tequila means uh, that you will wake up without a hangover, but you may have serious lapse of memories from the night before. <laughs> so um, maybe, maybe if it was in that little area there, but if you were driving, you, it definitely wasn't happening. So yeah, his, uh, his, the way he ran the BFG Pit program, uh, attention to detail, Uh, safety, knowing, knowing Baja, the peninsula, the people, the towns, um, being respectful, teaching, you know, making sure that, that each, each pit member knew, uh, you know, that they were representing a company that was well known down there and, um, and, you know, how, how to do it right and how to do it respectfully, uh, in a foreign country, especially, but I mean, that goes anywhere you go, any, any, venue you attend, but especially down there, um, just respecting the culture, knowing the culture, learning about the culture and uh, and ultimately being respectful It was definitely some great lessons and great times and I'm thankful I continue to get to go down there and um, and still be a part of it so
0: yeah it, it's it's amazing mexico um, Baja, you know that that respect of the culture is so important that, but a lot of, a lot of Americans don't get it. Um, you know, and, and I'm talking about, I've seen it with race teams. Um, you know, most of the racers themselves understand it because they're looking at it from a different perspective, but a lot of the people that go down there with their pit crews or whatever, you know, they, they have that, well, I'm American, you know, I, I can, you know, I can do what I want basically, and <laughs> it can cause a lot of troubles. You yeah. know, the, that respect thing is, goes big down there.
2: Yeah. Somebody asked me the other day, what, what's one of my biggest pet peeves or concerns, or if I could change one thing, what would it be? Um, it probably would be like, uh, it, it specifically in racing in Mexico, Um, it would would probably be, uh, chase teams and, and, you know, the driver probably has no idea or the team owner probably has no idea what, what some of the idiot, idiotic decisions that are being made, um, you know, trying to go somewhere too fast or, or running through a town full of people, um, too fast or unsafe or drinking and driving. There's a lot of that that goes down, unfortunately, down there, um, uh, yeah, I, I think especially on race day, but even even pre-running and stuff. There's just a lot of, a lot of times where where people don't don't consider that and 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 that's unfortunate. It's the same way with the pit program, and I and I try to to stress to teach one of the the pit members is uh, we do such great work down here, and the driver could say, you know, you had such a great race, um, and you put so much time and effort and money into it. Um, whether you know it's it's BF Goodrich or your team owner or your sponsors, and do so great and 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 then to have one person do something stupid and ruin it for everybody. So whether that driver gets DQ'd or um, that particular pit gets a black mark because of doing something stupid or or even bigger than that, you know. Uh, it could be the company that gets black mark because of one person, dec- you know, a lapse of judgment or doing something that they shouldn't do can ruin so much great hard work. Uh, it's frustrating. So it's, uh, it's important to, to, um, you know, when you're down there in a foreign country and you're, you're part of SCORE or you're part of the race, um, you're part of BF Goodrich, you're part of whatever race team you're with, uh, that you're representing them and thinking about that the the entire time.
0: Very true. Very true. So what is it with with Baja? I know that that Jeff used to, it seemed like Jeff was always down there to do uh, mapping. Now, would you guys, are you guys mapping for score? Are you helping them set the race course? Or are you... Are you guys just taking what they had given you and then creating your race books from that?
2: Yeah. So it's changed over the years for sure. So, um, you know, before GPS days, if you will, um, there was a lot of time spent down there and before Google earth days, um, (laughs) there was a lot of time spent down there looking for new trails and you actually had to physically go down there and do it, right? You didn't, you weren't, you couldn't just open up Google Earth and start looking around and looking for trails that show up on a picture from a satellite, right? So, in the early days, yeah, there was a lot of that going down with with the score of the sanctioning body and figuring out where where trails were and basically helping score put together a race course. Um, that that continues, except for a little bit different. Uh, we we do when we go down there mapping. Uh, we go down there um, to help Score. So we're with Score. Uh, we're helping them put together the GPS files, the race notes, and uh, we actually you know drive drive the course, make sure it's passable, uh, make sure there's nothing you know that that will keep the race from going there through there. And uh, so yes, we, we are down there on behalf of Score. But what's changed is obviously you have Google Earth. Um, you have a lot, a lot of resources today That, that we didn't have that, that sport didn't have 20 years ago Right um, So it's actually possible to kind of piece together A race course uh, Get an idea of where you want to go um, Digitally And then be able to go down there and actually physically Do it So um, that's definitely changed uh, Now that um, Jose G As we affectionately call him Is uh, the president of SCORE And Uh, his vice president uh, Rodo, they they, they're they're nationals so they live down there uh, compared to when say Sal and uh, and his nephew Paul were were putting courses together you know they would actually have to go down there to to do that kind of stuff Um, you know that Jose G and Rodo live down there so they can run down and spend more time down there looking at trails and physically doing stuff so there's definitely uh, that that side of it that helps and and um, one thing that Jose G's really made an effort to do is to, to find new course. And when finding new course down there, you have to, to, um, uh, develop new relationships with, with new ranchers and owners. Um, there's a group of ranchers called ajitos. Um, it, it's, it's not simple. You could pay off the, the leader of the Hito um, two months before the race. And then a month later, they, 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 Re-elect a new leader, or that leader goes away, or whatever, <laughs> and uh, this group of ranchers will say, "You never paid us." And uh, oh yeah, we did two months ago. I'm like, "No, that never happened." You're not coming through here. So there's a lot of that that goes on. There's a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff. Uh, I, I I I, purposely do not get a membership at like a, a forum, so I can't comment. But I do go through and read them, <laughs> and I I hear a lot of the comments from. A lot of, uh, a lot of them are just keyboard warriors, but, but there are some racers and some team members and and team managers, uh, that, that will comment on. And there's a lot of comments that I just have to bite my tongue. I can't comment because I refuse to get a membership. So I can cause it just turned into a worse deal for me. I'm sure. Um, there are a lot of comments. They, they just don't know or understand all, all that goes into some of the courses and some of the areas, um, Man, Baja is doing really, really well right now. Agriculture is huge. Um, you know, there seems to be money coming into the country. That's that's great for for the state of Baja. It's not so great for the sport of off road racing because there's more more uh, fields getting planted and, and uh, people not wanting you know race trucks throwing up dust all over their their crops. Um, so it's a little more difficult for us, us or score to, to find places to race. Um, so great for the, great for the, uh, the, the, people of Baja though, the fact that they, they have all that going on. Well, um, and I, I everybody... think that
0: having, um, Jose and Roto being nationals really, really does help. Because they their communi their lines of communication are clearer.
2: Yeah, for sure. And, and um, yeah, there's I'm sure there's pluses and minuses. Um, you're never gonna have a perfect race director. I mean, since you True. since you're not running it anymore, I mean, it's pretty impossible to find perfect perfect race director. But no, um, no, there's there's pluses and minuses to it for sure. Um, but I will say that. You know, they, they, of course, love their country and they also love score since they're pretty much running it. Um, And, uh, and they love, both of them are are hardcore um, desert racing enthusiasts and have actually done it themselves. And, and Roto's, uh, you know, been been at Dakar and and does some rally stuff and and is very knowledgeable in those areas. They, they love motorsports and want to see it continue. And they want to put on some fantastic uh, races, and the only the only impossibility in all of what they do is pleasing every racer.
0: Oh, that's impossible!
2: I don't care (laughs) what series it
0: is.
2: (laughs) Yep, yeah. So because um, racers
0: are singularly focused, they're focused on what is good for them, not what's (laughs) good for the entire sport and that doesn't matter if it's rock crawling short course desert um i mean nascar formula one any of that it's always exactly. about you know any team or driver or team owner is thinking about themselves first yep where the promoter yep. is looking at the whole umbrella
2: <laughs> exactly and you know there there's It's either it's either too dusty or it's not dusty enough or it's too rocky or there's not enough rocks or um, there's no whoops. So it's not a real desert race or there's too many or it's too deep or, um, you know, the highway thing is a big thing down there. You have to you have to get on the highway and go for a ways. And and everybody's like, why why can't we just, you know, stay off of the highways? Well, trust me. There's nothing more that Jose G wants to do than have a race without having to get on the highway. Uh, You hate to have to police
0: speed zones.
2: Yeah. Speed zones suck. You think they like staying up the entire night reviewing everybody's uh, files to see who was speeding and not? I mean, they they don't like doing that. They don't want to do that. But it's just a necessary evil. It has to happen because of the agriculture and land and, and, uh, and, and areas, I mean, do you want to, do you want to run a, um, uh, and no offense to it, to any other series or race out there, but, you know, do you want to run a loop multiple times right. and we can probably stay off the highways, um, but you may have to, to run the same loop three times in order to get 500 miles. And then you're dealing with lap traffic, um, and, and other unsafe situations, and a whole lot of other reasons why that that, uh, that they don't they don't do that. So, um, yeah, I, I, I read some of that stuff, and I just want to say, well, fine, you don't want to get on the highways. Perfect, we'll we'll get a hundred mile loop, and we'll run it five times. Oh, we don't want to do that. I'm like, what do you want?
0: <laughs>
1: exactly. <laughs> you
2: tell me what you would do. Yeah, um, but. Yeah, no, I think it's great. I think right now, uh, desert racing is, is in Ba is, is doing really well. They've been able to find new course uh, just about every, if not every race in the last couple of years. Um, they're already thinking about next year and in, in years to come. So uh, there's there's some some future planning, uh, some big ideas, and uh, we're not we're not just doing. The same thing over and over and over and over again so uh no i think it's i think it's really good but yeah to ultimately answer your question when we go down mapping i know i just went round and round but to, when we go down mapping we're going down there to help score out to get the race course and then we're also down there to uh to run access roads get the information that we need for our our BFG map books that we do and uh put our eyes on pit locations and uh, make sure you know we can get a semi or a box truck, or if we need to bring in a pickup truck and a trailer to, to get to certain pit locations, and, uh, and and mark those off so we have that done. So so yeah, we're 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 doing a little bit DFG business, um, but uh, definitely trying to help score out and uh, as a as a partner of theirs, uh, trying to support them.
0: I know that those pit books that you guys do are like gold. They are really handy for the teams that you guys have, of course, and, you know, that to be able to, to follow a book and say, okay, at this mile marker, you know, there's a dirt road off to the side, and you're going to take that, you know, how many kilometers, and and then you're going to turn, and then, you know, I mean, step by step to get to a pit location or how to get somewhere on a race course is really valuable, and... I know that they are, those things are hoarded by the teams that uh, that, that, are, that get those, and uh, that they're like national treasures where, you know, industry secrets that, you know, no other tire manufacturer, you know, or team on a different tire um, is supposed to have those books. Now, I can say that there was a time when I was with a team that did not was not running bfg and we got our hands on a book and it was like oh my god this thing was it was phenomenal and uh you know i know that everybody tries to do that but one of the best things that you guys do is is remind everybody to keep those things you know for bfg teams and it's important and you guys put the work in where the other manufacturers are not doing that
2: right I think there's a lot of things that you touched on that that, that uh, yeah the the map books they have a ton of information in them and, and they are an investment by B.F. Goodrich to uh, to send us down there to do that um, the thing with having old information like from past races is as you know down in Mexico there could be a road there one year and that might not even exist the next year. Or there could be a fence built across it, or there could be a washout, or there could be a million reasons why you couldn't go down that same road. So just because it was there last year and in a map book last year doesn't mean that it's there now. Right. And when we give out that information, we want it to be good information. Now, obviously, something can happen in the three weeks between when we map and and when the race actually happens But I think we do the best that we can to make sure that that doesn't happen. As far as giving the best information that that we can, so we run those we physically run those roads every single time, just to make sure they're still open and passable, and have the latest and greatest notes that we can do. So, an investment by the by BFG to send us down there to get that information to provide uh, our racers with that with that quality information. Um, Could other tire competitors or, or or race teams or whatever go down there and get that information, they could. Uh do we have a little inroad yes because of our sponsorship of of SCORE, the partnership that we have there, the investment that we make with score, we get to go down uh when score goes down to map it. So um so so we can we, we have a little more time maybe than uh than a competitor could have to get that, but a competitor could still, you know, go down the first day of pre-running and uh, and spend three or four days and get that information. Uh, But so far, none have chosen to do that. Uh, And and it takes a while. I mean, we've been putting these together for, what, 35, 40 years. So there's a lot of information there that has been passed on and on and on. And uh, we got a pretty good base, I guess, if you will, to start uh, when we go down there. And, uh, yeah, the the information is is as fresh as we can make it. It's uh, as detailed as we can make it we um it, it it takes a lot of time to put those together and with all the right information and we try to make it as valuable as possible and it, it, there may be information that's more pertinent now uh in 2022 than, than it was in in um you know in, in 2000 so always trying to think of what what could be beneficial to have in that in that book and i include a lot of score like score racer brief try to put in there uh just Not that anybody can't print it off and have it, but it's actually in, you know, a spiral spiral bound book that you you know you don't have to go scrambling around to to try to find loose pages or whatever or do it yourself. We try to include all that kind of stuff that we feel would be important that racers would use or chase teams would use uh, during race day during their pre-running. Well, I guess not so much pre-running because you don't really get the map book until a couple days before the race, uh, but uh, on race day, to be able to 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 have that information at your hand to uh, to help uh, you you be successful and have and have a good time while you're down there.
0: Yeah, it 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 truly is extremely valuable for the teams, having been on te- on both sides. You know, been with teams with BFG and then being with teams without that that kind of support. Man, it it really. There was times I was like, "All right, we need to." We need to cruise in and and acquire a book somehow, you know, (laughs) and acquiring one was, uh, you know, it had to be, you know, you were like a spy. (laughs) I wouldn't say Um, anything, any illegal activities went on, but maybe (laughs) trying to get those books. But You know, (laughs) it was, they were valuable and everybody knows it. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And, And that's how I think. Yeah, there's, there's going to be some competitors that might get one, but I think for the most part, um, teams that have experience have been coming down there. I think there's a reason why a lot of them have chosen the product. Number one, obviously, is a product, and I've kind of switched my hat from being Nate and this Jackson guy to uh, to uh, the BFG guy. But um, the the product's always been number one. If we don't if we don't have the right product, then we don't need to be there and you know that's both michelin and bf goodrich and uh, we want to have the right product and then we want to have the best product and we send down tech technical uh like engineers to every single race that we support we we bring out somebody from technical and that way they can talk about air pressure they can talk about what's the right tire solution that we have for your vehicle and for the terrain that you're going to be going out on uh, what's the, what's the right solution for your chase truck that that you uh, that you use for your your pickup truck that you use at home, uh, all that kind of stuff are, are important questions and 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 get get brought up and we we have uh, technicians that come to every single race and I think that's valuable um, and then of course looking at the tires at the finish line and, and seeing where there may be an issue with a tire or where where we can improve on a tire if there's some some wear or if there's some puncture or whatever it could be, uh, how can we make this tire better? And they take that information back. And sometimes we send tires back and uh, always trying to find where we can improve on the product and make something better. And what's the next best thing we, we when I say we be good to spe- uh, invest a lot of money in making sure that, that uh, if we're going to do this, we're doing it right. And, and products number one. So yeah, people are down there uh, racing on our tires, I, one I believe because of the product and the quality of product. Two would be because of our involvement with, with the the sport of off-road racing and the history that we have, uh, and then the level of support that we do it, as far as the the map books, the GPS files that we provide, um, the pit service that we provide to teams, I think is also very important. So I think those are probably the three main reasons why why people choose BF Goodrich tires and and why uh, we've been able to to have the majority of the entire four four wheel field on on BF tires, and uh, we hope to continue that.
0: Perfect. Yep, I agree. So uh, I can't ask what's next for Nate because you're young enough and been with the company um, from the beginning of your time, and uh, you'll probably be continue doing that until you decide to to hang it up, but, uh, cause I can't imagine them getting rid of you. Um, I saw it right off from the very beginning when you stepped into that role with Frank, that, uh, that you were, you were the hair apparent, you might say. Hmm. Um, and you know, that was probably one reason I was always buttering up to you. You know was hoping to, to get you guys involved but I understand it's it's not your decision it's it that comes down from corporate of course but it's uh, you know I, I see you there until until you decide to walk away on your own terms so um, I got to say congratulations on doing that that you know you've you've created that uh, that that need for them to have you there and uh, I think you've done a great job.
2: Well, thanks. I, I don't know. I, I I appreciate that. And yeah, I can hope for that. Um, but in, in my mind, uh, I'm only as good as my last race and I'm getting ready for the next one. And the only reason I get to do the next one is because I did the last one well enough for them to keep me on. So um, I, I'm definitely not going to try to rest on my laurels or past or past success, if you want to call it that. Um, to me, it's always about this next one, and uh, uh, I want to the brand to be represented well. I want to win. I hate losing, and, and that yes, overall, but in each of the classes, there, everybody looked at San Felipe and like, oh, B.F. Goodrich got their hundredth win, overall win in Baja. You know, what a huge thing! And I was yeah, very excited, very excited that the great family, like the McMillans, got that win with Luke and Luke's a superstar. He's awesome. Everybody's like, he is a future. I'm like, no, he's the present <laughs> and he's actually a little bit past too. Um, <laughs> he, he's pretty awesome. But, um, but yeah, it, it's, it's, uh, we, we lost a couple of classes that I re- really wanted to win. And, uh, so yeah, it's never good enough. Um, but that's what drives you to the next race. And that's what drives you at the end of the year when we're looking at, you know, who we, Maybe be able to partner with in the future and man, some great young talent coming up. Um, you know, I, I, I get to talk to uh, Caden McEachern all the time and everybody's like, you know, Rob Mack's son. Yeah. But the kid's a talent himself and well-spoken and, and well-groomed of course, and had a great teacher, but you know, he's, he's doing great. He's doing his own thing. Um, Jack Oligus, Steve Oligus' son, uh, just, you know, 15, 16 years old, um, great talent. And uh, well spoken. Um, some that are a little older, like the the Seth Quinteros and the Mitch Guthrie Juniors, and there's some really, really great, talented. Uh, it makes me feel like the old guy now saying younger kids. But um, congratulations! But man, yeah, yeah, thanks. Uh, just some, just the the future of off road racing is exciting to me. Um, you know, consider Luke a kid. He's younger. Uh, but you know, I'm hoping he's got you know 20 or 30 years in this business, um, winning races, and, uh, and and his brother Dan, who's you know knocking at the door, he got a, a 500 win was it last maybe not last year, year before 2020, I think. Um, you know, starting to put his stamp on on things, and uh, you know that what's that what's that uh, older gentleman's name? Uh, Rob? Rob. <laughs> yeah, that Rob McCaffrey guy. Um, you know, that dude's still still kicking some butt. And uh, I don't think anybody wants to hear, yeah, that's Rob Mack behind you, or that's Rob Mack in front of you. Um, you know, he's still got it. And I, man, I've gotten to uh, to meet some great people, like I said, with the Sal's and Rob's and, or um, Frank's and uh, Richard Winchester's and Jeff Cummings, a lot of great people, Bob Bauer, um, Rich Klein. dave coles um you know some really great people um but probably the racer i talk to the most is rob and uh you know he's still got he's still one of the most passionate people about the sport that i that i get to talk to and about life and and you know he he's excited to see caden racing um you know but he's just excited about life You know, he's got his daughters, Amber's, and her her two daughters, and, you know, just talking about life and families and things that come along with that as well. So, yeah, just uh, the people that I know in racing right now, like I talked about the Ormhoff deal with the the past, if you will, or the people that helped build this, and then the future is looking awesome. I can't wait. I really do. I I really hope that, as you said, I'm not going anywhere. and get to keep doing this because – I want to see what happens. I can't wait to see what happens. 500 is coming up really quickly and and I can't wait for that race. It's going to be a fun race and can't, can't wait to see how, how the the teams do. Um, BF Goodrich has got a new tire coming out. It's a 40 inch on an 18 inch wheel. Um, So a little bit different and and maybe, uh, maybe the future and, uh, just something new out there, see how it does. Um, I've never known them to put out something that's not really good, so I'm sure this is going to be really good. Can't wait to see how that does. And there's a uh, new UTV tire out there. Um, yeah, so product, racers, series, race courses. I mean, what's not to like and how can you not uh, lay your head down on a pillow at night and go, man, sometime, you, you got lucky somehow, dude. So, uh <laughs>
0: Yeah. It was saying, yeah, I'll unload those trucks of tires, <laughs> you know, yeah, think about yeah, that. Exactly. If you just said no.
2: <laughs> if I would have said, I'm not going to your softball game, I'm going to go to sleep. Or if I, uh, wouldn't have had those flat tires and had to spend the night and work my way down there and, uh, been sleeping while he went to a softball game. Right. Um, yeah. There are a whole, whole circle of things. And, um, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm blessed. I'm thankful. And, uh, and grateful for the opportunities that I've had and hopefully get to continue to have. And my, uh, <laughs> I guess, especially, you know, when, when Frank's retired and, you know, starting to do more of his, his horse stuff and, and, uh, and kind of move away. I mean, he was a huge, iconic figure, so knowledgeable, experienced. Um, you know, it was like, <laughs> I think I still say this to myself, just don't screw it up too bad. <laughs> just don't screw it up. Do that. Um, you know the the, uh, the what? What? Be of Goodrich is built in the off-road racing world, and it, it, just in the off-road world in general, with the, with the jeeps and trail riding and Moabs and, and Jeep jamborees and all that kind of stuff. Um, Spent some some great people have helped build this thing, and uh, and it's like it's a responsibility that weighs on your shoulders. Of man, don't screw this up. Right, uh, yeah. If that's not a motivating enough for us, then it probably shouldn't be in this position. <laughs> but um, true enough. Yeah. Well, I feel like I, I feel like I've talked more about um, myself than I have in my entire life in the last like hour and a half.
0: Good. That's what we wanted.
2: <laughs> I don't know if that's good or bad.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, you didn't give away any uh, any deep dark secrets, so I think you're safe.
2: Yeah. Unfortunately, um the only birth defect that I was born with was uh that uh, some people say that there was this filter thing. I, I was I wasn't born with that filter. So I don't really have too many secrets. I kind of an open book and unfiltered. But
0: it appears that you have done it right. So that's uh that's a plus. There's a lot of us that have uh, a lot of skeletons in the closet, you might say, where uh you know, running for political office nowadays you know with with being able to uh to pull up just about any skeleton that ever that you think you might have hidden um you know to me it, it it appears that you know you could probably uh, run for political office and not worry about skeletons so <laughs> well, that means doing it right
2: I, I won't say I've always done it right but i I will say that I've always tried to make it right and if, if I if I didn't do it right then I I'd try to make it right and the, I think that's the best that you can do. Um, you're not always going to do it right every time, uh, but you can always make an effort to to make it right afterwards, um, whether it's in life or business or whatever. So,
1: yep,
0: perfect. So, Nate, I want to say thank you very much for for spending the time and uh, talking about that life, and uh, you know what bfg has meant to you and and to the the programs itself to to the racers and uh again just thank you so much for for being part of it
2: of course glad to do it and um appreciate you giving me an opportunity and uh, i got a, a few of your podcasts to catch up on i was just kind of scrolling through and seeing how many that i've got i didn't realize that you did this many i did see a few of them I have some definitely ones that introduce that, that interest me for sure. Um, I did see you got Bob Bauer for two segments and that makes a lot of sense. Oh, we could have kept talking (laughs) a a full day.
0: (laughs) Yes, it could have, we could have easily, I probably could have done three with all the information that I got. And uh, you know, we, we pulled it, I pulled it down to the, to the essentials um, and you know, I could easily do another one with that guy. The guy is just his stories and what he has done and been part of is just incredible. Absolutely yeah. incredible.
2: Yeah. Well, definitely try to get Frank on here. Um, he'll, uh, he, he's got some great stories and he's got a great way of, uh, of talking about the, the sport and, um, of course the brand, but um, racers. He's got some great stories. You got to get him on iron for sure. There's way more interesting people to get on here than definitely me. So
0: uh,
2: you, you still got some podcasts to record. You're not done yet.
0: <laughs> no, I don't. I, I, to be honest. Yeah, that's true. I'm, I'm not done. Um, this is a, a labor of love and passion and every, every week I get more and more names to put on there and I only put out one a week. So I have I have more than enough people to uh, to interview until until at some point I hope somebody takes it over and says, okay now we're going to do conversations with somebody else and (laughs) that they discontinue on my list because, you know, I don't know if I can last that long, (laughs) to be honest.
2: Well, what what I would love to do, what I would love to do is is be able to record our, uh, our our late night chats around a campfire or around a table and having some drinks and, and hear some of the stories and, and, and how many, how many, how many world problems have we solved in those situations? And we just weren't able to remember it the next day, but um, (laughs) I always thought that would be a fun podcast to listen to. Of course you'd have to edit the next day for sure. You may spend a lot of time editing the next day, but um, (laughs) I think that would be pretty fun to, to listen to.
0: I think that's a great idea. And I know there's a couple of podcasts out there that do that in in a kind of a small way. What I'm doing now, boy, it's enough. You know, I mean, it's uh, at least for me at this particular moment. So, Nate, um, I'm going to end it there. Thank you very much for coming on board and being part of this. Um, the last thing I'm going to say is thank you for talking about Ormhoff. I think that uh, everybody in the off-road industry, whether it's rock crawling, short course, desert racing, um, rally motorcycles UTVs needs to look into Ormhoff and being part of that that organization I think it's vital in the the overall health and longevity of our of our of off-road
2: yes absolutely and a hundred percent, we're also trying to. Uh, we um, somebody here at Jackson is actually working on the Motorsports Hall of Fame and trying to get some more recognition for off-road in in, uh, in the Motorsports Hall of Fame as well. So
0: oh, that'd be awesome. Um, but
2: def- definitely being involved with Ormhoff and, and and paying. I mean, it's not that much Just pay pay to be a member and 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 stay involved in and in, um, you know, you got you got to keep the history alive. I mean, that's what drives the future. So
0: yeah, I've been trying to get more of, more rock crawling involved in it. But without the guys that have rock crawled in the past and the guys that are rock crawling right now thinking about, you know, their involvement in the sport and helping with that involvement with, uh, with Ormhoff is, uh, you know, without that involvement, we're not going to get the recognition that, that rock crawling deserves, I think so.
2: 100 percent
0: everybody listening out there whether you're an enthusiast a spectator a team member or whatever if you if you enjoy off-road get involved with the off-road motorsports hall of fame ormhoff it's it's a fantastic organization and again nate thank you so much
2: yeah thank you rich
0: all right we'll talk to you later bye
2: okay bye
0: thank you for listening to conversations with big rich Please let your friends know about this podcast. Let us know what you think of Conversations with Big Rich. Please forward ideas to me, contacts of those that I should attempt to interview. Leave a rating on any of the services you found us on. We look forward to your comments and ideas. Enjoying life is a must. Follow your dreams and grab all the gusto you can.